Hi friends, welcome back. My guest today is Eric Jorgensen, and he has spent the last three years and over a million words putting together the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Now, if you don't know who Naval is, he's a thinker and founder from Silicon Valley, but more importantly, he's risen to prominence, I guess, over the last few years with his Twitter feed, which is kind of like if Aristotle or Seneca or Marcus Aurelius was living in the 21st century and just constantly putting out absolute gold. That's that's kind of like what it's like to follow Naval online. Uh, and the problem is that all of his work is distributed in tiny little 240 character tweets and three minute podcast episodes that he does. So Eric's goal was to compile all of that and then condense it down into a single, easily digestible reference of all of Naval's work. And today we get to go through exactly what he learned upon that mammoth task. I adore Naval's work. I think he genuinely is one of the most unique thinkers that's alive today. And I couldn't be happier to help him promote this project. By the way, this book is free. You can pay for a hardcover or a paperback on Amazon, but you can go to Navalmanac, which is linked in the show notes below, and you can pick up a PDF or an ebook copy of this absolutely for free. So please tweet Eric, tell him thank you for dedicating three years of your life to a project which is just it's so phenomenal that it should be easily £100 per download. Uh, yeah, I really hope that you enjoy today. We talk about wealth, happiness, desire, how we limit our own ability to stay present, uh, some of the contradictions in what Naval says and in modern philosophy as well. It's a really insightful discussion that I think could have a profound impact on your life if you're in the right place to hear it. In other news, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. Protect your browsing online and get access to the entire world's Netflix library for less than the price of a cup of coffee per month. Realistically, you're not going to be globetrotting anytime soon, so you might as well sink your teeth into Netflix's best of, and the easiest way to do that is to get access to America's Netflix library. They have like every Marvel film and tons and tons of series and cartoons that you definitely don't have if you are not in that country. And if you are in America and you've already rinsed through all of that, then get yourself a VPN, have a look at what we've got in the UK some nice faulty towers or some Mr. Bean, perhaps, uh, or some anime from Japan, whatever it is that you're into, you can get access to everything with Surfshark VPN. Also, you can protect yourself from nasty websites that are price matching you and trying to split test different prices, making you pay more for the products that you are already trying to buy. You can protect your password from hackers. You get to use this across unlimited devices, so it can be on your phone, your laptop, your iPad, whatever you've got in the household under one account. And it is super easy to do. Literally just sign up, download it, press a button at the top and you will be able to move around the world like a an invisible Netflix surfing ghost or something else. <laughs> anyway, head to surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom for 83% off, three months free and a 30-day money-back guarantee. That's 83% off, three months free and a 30-day money-back guarantee. So sign up if you don't like it. Ask for your money back in 30 days, no problems. Surfshark.deals slash modern wisdom. But for now, it's time to talk about the wisdom of Naval Ravikant with Eric Jorgensen.
Welcome to Naval Fest 2020. This there's big dick energy. We're just marinating in it today, and we're going to see how much we can jerk off over Naval over the next 60 minutes. A couple hundred pages, probably worth, um, and then and then edited material. So we got a lot to go on. DVD extras, pay per view, OnlyFans, like additional content, DVD commentary, bonus scenes, director's cut. We got it all. I love it. So, why are you writing a book about Naval? Why did you like what makes him worthy of a book? Who is he? I've been following Naval for ten years now. Maybe uh, he was the first person I kind of got introduced to in the valley, not personally, but when I was, you know, just a wet behind the ears kid from Michigan who had never left Michigan and was like trying to get into the startup world. Somebody's like, go read all of Venture Hacks, follow Naval, do everything he says. Um, and him and Paul Graham were kind of like those are the lighthouses of the valley, like go listen and follow. Um, so that I've been kind of following for a long time and I learned a ton from him. And as he's kind of evolved over the years and started sharing more and more stuff, I've learned more and more. And I found myself recommending, you know, his podcast, his tweets and for, to more and more people for more and more reasons. And I realized kind of how hard it is for people outside of like the Twitter verse and the podcast world to kind of pick up that and run with it and learn from it. But the stuff that he talks about, um, is, it can be so life-changing for so many people at, at many different stages, I think. And there's just so much value there that I really wanted like an easy on-ramp and I wanted a, a tight package. And I'm watching these like high-value, you know, huge pieces of wisdom um, just kind of slide into the like Twitter nothingness. Um, and it broke my heart. And I'm like, I, I need to turn this into something more evergreen, something more permanent. And, you know, there's no better package than a book. Everybody knows what to do with a book. Everybody, um, you know, that's it's easy to gift. It's easy to read through. Um, it's people know kind of what to do with it. And it'll, hopefully it'll live on, you know, and, and stay relevant for a really long time. What's unique about Naval? Naval, uh, like came to the U.S. as a poor immigrant at nine years old, uh, I think Brooklyn, and just kind of had to start from nothing and build his way up. Um, you know, he, he got into a good high school, uh, which is, which is a huge turning point for him early in his life. I mean, he's undeniably just a brilliant guy. So, um, you know, he, he didn't scrap it together from nothing. You know, he's definitely got some like horsepower, um, but got into this great high school, got into Dartmouth, started at the bottom in the tech world, uh, you know, studied computer science and eventually kind of through a bunch of different missteps and adventures and companies and failures and lawsuits um, and investments kind of found his way into breaking out in the tech world and starting angel list and he's incredibly widely followed kind of in that tech world for what he's built there and the investments that he's made in twitter and uber and he's in this kind of interesting chapter of life that you see kind of a lot of people go through where they have achieved all of the successes that they hoped to achieve when they were younger and they're now kind of both giving back those lessons of how they achieved what they did and kind of turning to philosophy and family and legacy and just looking at how they can, how they can give back and how they can learn um, a little bit more about, you know, life instead of the rat race. And so it's kind of an interesting turning point where he knows a lot about wealth from his past and, you know, he continues to work and invest, but he's learning a lot about happiness um, in the, in the very recent present and is, practicing it currently and continuing to kind of develop that and share it the particular uh, interesting insight that i have about navala the reason i think i'm drawn to him is the fact that his wisdom is so practical there's part of me uh, ryan holiday was recently on here massimo piglucci's been on here we've talked a lot about stoicism and it's like the hot new girl in school for 2020 but there's part of me when i read it 
that doesn't like how abstract it is. I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, man, yeah, virtue and integrity and overcome the obstacle. I'm like, okay, I get it. But there's there's just a part of it that feels too, like, bourgeois and artsy, you know? Like, let's not forget that the vast majority of the Stoics came from wealth. Like, there was some, there was mm-hmm. some that was born as slaves and ended up in good situations, but, oh, bad situations. But the vast majority of them came from wealth. And I think that even two and a half thousand years later, that still kind of reflects and shows on. Whereas someone whose wisdom has really, really been not just designed for practicality, but forged in reality, like Naval's, is is something that um, attracts me to it particularly. And I think as well, the vast majority of us are, you know, like middle class, working class or aspiring underclass. And with that in mind you feel a sense of affinity to someone who's got that like zero to hero journey, you know, as opposed to it just being someone armchair philosophizing this like Baroque fucking mansion somewhere that their dad has, you know, you get me? Yeah. It's, it is very practical and it is definitely, I find it easier to listen to philosophies from somebody who has passed the tests of reality, who is an operator, who has founded companies, who has made investments and stoicism. I totally agree with you. Like, it's it's easy to like kind of read it and be like, yeah, sure, I agree. And then passing the test of reality, like there's a lot of times where it is does is not practical. Like it is almost incompatible with having like close intimate relationships or friendships. And like I really want to hear people talk about like how they act, how they react stoically when like their partner is upset or when their child is upset and things like that that are it's not like a guru on a mountain. Like it's easy to be stoic and you're by yourself, like under a tree. And that's just not how we live and not, I think how we want to live. Um, and so finding the kind of like, where do you put the dial between stoicism as an operating philosophy and maybe a business practice and, you know, how you act with your family when you need to be empathetic and and build deep relationships and deep friendships. Um, I I think that's something that's like really kind of interesting to dig into and a, a piece of curiosity that I'm left with, even after this book is kind of like, where do you where do you go um, to kind of find that balance between the ideal and the practical? I think that's a, a really important point, the fact that you can write something which is 100% artsy and sounds beautiful in these abstract terms, but there's a lot of work left to be done by the reader to then deploy that to their own lives. And I think that, again, you know, this is just a full-on jerk-off around Naval, but I think the reason that he has managed to resonate with people saying things that really should be far too highbrow for the, everyone to listen to um, is that he's sacrificed maybe sort of 10 to 20% of the artsiness for an additional 80% of practical um, ability to apply almost immediately. You know, it reads mm-hmm. like it's somewhere in between Stoic Maxim's and a how to put your life together guide if it was done like by an IKEA uh, instruction manual. <laughs> yeah, yeah, get into the principles. Precisely. Uh, so, look, the book is split into two parts wealth and happiness. Are there any sections that you could have added, but you didn't? Oh, many. Yeah. Um, I, the first manuscript of this, the thing was like hundreds more pages, um, and it included you know, his thoughts on blockchain and education and the future. There was kind of this whole futurism section and investing and how to operate startups. Um, I did one section that was just the story of AngelList, you know, how, you know, the the trials that he went through kind of as an early founder led to 
his views on venture capital, which led to, you know, venture hacks, the blog, which led to AngelList, the platform. It's a really, really incredible story. Um, all of that is on the website. So it like broke my heart to cut it from the book. And I was like, duh, just put it on the website. And people who want it can, after they read the book can go kind of get into that stuff. Um, early readers, like everybody kind of loved one or two of those sections, but not all of them. And I didn't want to publish like a giant textbook of everything Neville had ever said, even though it's interesting to me. Um, so that's kind of self-serve on the website, but the, but the main two sections, um, of the book are, are wealth and happiness. And I really think it's, you know, there's a lot of books out there on wealth and there's a lot of books out there on happiness. And Naval is, is maybe really interesting in the fact that he sits at the corner of those two and kind of very practically to your point, like looks at the trade-offs between the two. Um, something that I didn't know until reading this was that, Buddha was a prince. Like he was very wealthy. And so when he, you know, he was able to kind of just leave his family and go off in the woods and meditate and study and just kind of learn and become peaceful and practice this philosophy. Um, and, and so Naval is very practical about like, there's actually like a lot of ways in which happiness is dependent on wealth. Building wealth isn't going to make you happy, but it will certainly give you the space to study and explore philosophy and to kind of not spend your whole life with your head down in the rat race. So he's like, by all means, like getting rich is a perfectly practical, reasonable goal on the way to becoming happy. Like you don't have to be happy to be rich, but also it definitely helps. Like your money solves your money problems and those are problems. So if you can solve that, it gives you time and it gives you space to kind of explore some of these other things. Um, and that to your point about the Stoics, like many of the philosophers, that we look to were either very, very wealthy or they had so little and had absolutely nothing and no responsibilities. And, you know, they had so little that they could choose to, you know, basically become a monk, renounce everything and find happiness. And so if you're only going to go one of those two directions, like you can go all the way to having nothing and wanting nothing and eliminate all your desires, or you can try to get really rich, store up a bunch of that goodwill and give yourself the space to kind of lower your desires below your means, but, but just know that, you know, you got to build that gap in or you're just always going to be unhappy. It's like when you're on a diet, anyone who's had to do a hard cut before a holiday knows if you're on locales, everything, every single experience in your life is flavored with the fact that you're still a bit hungry. And it's mm -hmm. like the same as being skin. If you've not got enough money, if you don't know where the next paycheck or the next bills are going to come from, you can be having the best time of your life but there's this tarnish that's layered, this veneer that's sort of layered over the top of things that says, yeah, but but money. Yeah, but but I don't know where the next paycheck's coming from. And it's um, being rich might not make you happy, but being poor can make you miserable. And Diogenes the cynic who lived out of a, a pot and was sort of the first of the minimalist movement, which we're now seeing a resurgence in, like asceticism and minimalism, I guess, in the 20th century, 21st century. Um, yeah, Diogenes was like the the um, grandfather of that. But I don't want to be Diogenes, you know? Like, I want to have nice things. I want to... And again, another Navalism, which everyone will be familiar with, one of my favorites is it is far easier to achieve your... Uh, material desires than it is to renounce them so i would much sooner say i don't need a ferrari when my last car was a ferrari than try and battle through all of the different bizarre attachments that i've got to work out yeah but i never wanted it in any case and you get into so much sort of self-deception there in any case so okay wealth yeah. how is wealth created yeah wealth is created um there's a whole kind of 
set of formulas in the book that kind of break this down almost almost uh principal formulas and so your income is determined by your accountability plus your specific knowledge plus the degree of leverage that you're using and then your income is going to determine your wealth based on your savings rate and your return on income but naval really prioritizes building wealth as uh looking for assets that can earn money while you sleep so building media buying equity in a business um you have to get sort of you know whether you're building software whether you're building a podcast or a blog or a book or whatever it is do something that can work that is not a linear input and output you know if you're working even if you're a very high paid doctor you're working an hour you're getting paid even a thousand ten thousand dollars an hour it's going to be really really tough to outwork the amount of time that you have and so you have to start using tools of leverage so labor capital um or product in order to kind of build in that leverage and get that compounding going because it's going to take you a long time and you're going to need that compounding relationship with a, a long period of time probably in order to actually get the space to build that wealth that particular insight which comes from the e-myth revisited as well that if you have any business where if you were to leave for more than six weeks and the whole thing was to fall apart that's not a business that's just a highly leveraged job that mm -hmm. insight to a lot of people you know especially if you've grown up working class you know i own my own business i'm I, or even what what's a um a synonym for that i'm my own boss okay I'm my own boss and I own a business are two incredibly different things. You talked about mm -hmm. um, accountability and sort of some other terms that are very like Navali. Can you just break those down for people who haven't gone down the rabbit hole already? Yeah, sorry. I went through a lot kind of quickly there. Um, and, and the book is really an attempt to unpack a lot of those terms. And so, you know, it's easy to kind of blow through a few words, but really like accountability is a compression of pages and pages of ideas. Uh, and same with specific knowledge specific knowledge is probably the right place to start so specific knowledge is kind of finding a fit between what society needs what the world is willing to pay for and what you are uniquely capable of and happy to deliver as a work product right so you love talking about modern wisdom philosophers stoicism talking with people on the internet and pulling out their lessons and sharing it with people you're really good at it you're passionate about it you love to do it and that is going to let you outwork and outpace and outperform a lot of other people that might try to do it, but not be as not have it be in quite as good of alignment with who they are as a person and what they've spent their whole lives studying and becoming. And so that specific knowledge is really um, there's kind of two parts. And one is understanding yourself well enough to know what your talents are and what you really want to be doing. And that is that is not to be overlooked like that is a hard thing to do. Um, and it's something that we are all kind of, you know, we're always changing and our understanding of ourselves are always changing and growing. And so, it, you know, relying on the people around you, um, they actually may be better at showing you kind of who you are and what your specific knowledge and skills are. One of the tests that, uh, questions that Naval asks is like, what are the things that other people ask you to do? You know, what, what are things that people come to you for help with? Um, or what are the things that, you found yourself doing at a very young age, like your, your parents and those around you, like, you know, the things that you've been doing since you were, if you were a gossip, you know, in third grade and you know run around tattling on people, like maybe you're a journalist now or something, you know? Um, so that's one piece. The other piece of that specific knowledge is getting to understand what you can deliver to society that they are, that society is not 
yet able to get for itself um, or that you might be able to do better than anyone has ever done it before. And hopefully at scale back to what we were talking about. I'm like, you don't want inputs and outputs on an hourly basis. You want to be able to do something that is going to be, you know, replicable 10 times or a hundred times or a thousand times, whether that's through media or code or, you know, labor or capital. What are some examples of those four types of leverage just in real world? Yeah, so capital um, is, is maybe the easiest place to start um, because if you place a bet for $10, you buy a stock with $10 and you're right and it doubles, it goes to 20. But if you do it with a million, it goes to 2 million. And the rewards for that are the leverage comes from capital. It's this exact same decision. But if you made the decision leveraged by capital, that is a huge outcome differential. Um, and so you can use your own capital, certainly. Like there's a lot of leverage that comes from that. But there is also capital from others. And for that, you need to be able to kind of build your reputation. And to do that, you're taking accountability in public. So that accountability for your bets and making publicly kind of um, observable things so that you can build that track record of having good judgment so that other people are willing to kind of lend you their leverage in the form of capital or in the form of labor. So labor is another piece where, um, you know, there's a there's an amazing design for you know, an automobile at Tesla, but it takes hundreds, thousands of people to build that car to that spec. And that is, you know, every person who's working under that plan is a piece of that leveraged outcome. Like labor is a, is a form of leverage. There's, you know, someone can perform a task for a hundred dollars an hour and that company is going to pay them $50 an hour to do it, but it's worth a hundred to the market. So there's leverage in that. Um, and you want to be, you know, by owning the equity of that business, you are on the, the profiting side of that leverage instead of the like slightly less profiting side of that leverage. Not that it's not a, you know, a positive trade for both because people need jobs and employment and pickup skills and everything like that. You know, everybody's starts there at some point, but hopefully by buying equity in that business. Um, so that's a, that's a piece that he talks about as well. There's a lot of ways to get equity. Um, but the people who get truly wealthy almost always do it through equity ownership. So those are the first, I guess those are kind of the traditional two. And then yeah. we've got media and is it programming or code or product? He he says uh, it's a little bit of a mouthful, but the, the full kind of definition is products with no marginal cost of replication. Um, yeah, code. Code. Yeah. <laughs> code. code and media. Uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy actually he, he refers to it as symbol manipulation which I think is kind of interesting, um, like broad classification, uh, but like includes podcasts. Like what we're doing right now is we record it once, you know, we spend two hours on it, but it lives on forever. You know, whether a hundred people listen to it or a hundred thousand people listen to it, like that value is still there and it can be available and served up even when we are not there to, you know, talk to people. It's not again. like we have so, to have this conversation over and over again on demand every time that someone decides to do it. Yeah, they pull open their podcast app and say, I want to listen to Chris and Eric. And we oh, Eric, mate, someone's done it again. We're going to have to wake up. What did I say? I can't remember how we started. Um, so uh, it's, it's that, and then it's um, talking about the code. So how would code work? What would be an example of that? Yeah, that's, you know, someone writes a software program um, that one person could buy or 100 people could buy or 1,000 people could buy. And there's, you know, server farms all over the world that can dish it out to people. And that program may need to be updated and kept relevant. But once it runs, um, 1,000 people can buy. And that's why we're seeing, like, enormous margins in in software and SaaS, um, it, which is really a thing that, you know, didn't exist 
in the industrial era. Um, so the, the marginal cost of replicating some of these solutions is just lower than it has ever been. And it completely changes the economics of some of these businesses in ways that are really, really interesting. Um, and I think we're still kind of seeing what the impact of that is. And it, it, I don't, it's going to be really interesting um, how this, it's still evolving. It's going to be really interesting, I think, how it looks in a historical context and how we're going to feel about it. But it, it accounts for this abundance of, of media and software and things that we see around us. Um, and the other thing I would say about the productized piece that is important is that they are permissionless, right? So the internet is this giant meritocracy where anyone can record a podcast and push it out into the world and only the best ones are going to get listened to and surfaced and the audience is going to kind of let that continue to snowball but no one can stop you from recording a podcast there's no editor there's no there's not a huge capital requirement um, no one can stop you from you know submitting open source code on github and getting it out there no one can stop you from getting a gumroad account and you know starting to kind of sell things on the internet so there's a, there's a key element here where the cost of starting something or getting something out and putting your entry into this meritocracy has, has never been lower. And the rewards for doing it are basically uncapped if you do it well enough. That particular section there is something that everyone listening probably should go back and listen to, especially if you're new to this concept. I appreciate that for guys like yourself, who's sort of just bathing in Silicon Valley and, and the sort of wisdom of the um, highly leveraged that it might just now be taken as for granted. But the vast, vast, vast majority of people, even in the Western world, don't see work or finances or the route to wealth in that sort of a way. It's a lot more linear than exponential like that. It's, I work at a business, I become better at a business, I get paid more per hour. You know, if you were to say to someone, hey man, you can have a job that pays you 500 pounds an hour, $1,000 an hour or whatever it is, like uh, unbelievable Unbe but then if you were to say you can create a course that teaches everyone on the planet how to do that thing that can earn them 500 pounds or a thousand pounds an hour you could make 10 grand every like every couple of hours that they'll be like well i don't understand like i'm just doing the same job no, no 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 it's about abstraction it's about being able to do stuff at scale it's about being able to leverage yourself um and that's something that Naval says. He says, is it productize yourself? Yeah, that's like the summary of the entire tweet storm is productize yourself. And it, it, for me, it took a few passes through to kind of understand and be able to unpack or repack all of those concepts back into just the two words productize yourself. Um, but I think there's a few people that kind of um, are living this in a way that is even teaching you know, I've spent a lot of time with this material. Like I like to think I get the concepts, um, but watching guys like Jack Butcher, I don't know if you, you follow him at all. He's the a British brilliant dude. Yes. Yes, they are. Um, and he, uh, so he contributed the illustrations for the book. Uh, so if you love the illustrations, you love Jack Butcher, whether you know it or not. And he's done an absolutely masterful job of productizing himself and creating assets and, courses and products and teaching people how to visualize ideas this this incredible skill that he's developed over you know years of working with fortune 500 companies and top tier agencies and things like that he's a, he's incredibly skilled at it and he is turning that into an incredible business and an incredible kind of um way to give back to the audience and help other people like accumulate this skill that has been so valuable i mean for me, it, just to help kind of inculcate these ideas into my head, like vi being able to visualize them simply really carries a lot of weight when you're working with things that are like a little bit abstract like this. Can you use Jack just 
briefly as an example between what he was doing as the agency with the one problem, one solution to what he's doing now. I think that would be a really wonderful way to sort of just bookend and illustrate what we've gone through so far. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I, I don't know the story incredibly well. Um, and if you haven't had him on again, I'm sure he'd be an amazing guest at some point um, to tell his own story. But I'll, I'll butcher the butcher story the best I can. Nice. Um, so he, he was working for, uh, you know, some, a high, some high class agency that was billing him out at, you know, thousands of dollars an hour. And he's a, a very talented designer. And so he was working, you know, building logos, websites and things for, you know, Fortune 500 companies and high end fancy car companies and stuff like that. And was just getting his ass kicked, I think, regularly at work and looking around. I was like, man, I'm creating a ton of value and a ton of people are kind of taking their scrape along the way. And so he started his own agency um, to kind of try to recapture some of that. And that was like going well, but he was in that kind of linear trap we were talking about where he was billing out, but he was working his face off and he was just like, man, I don't know how I'm going to like get ahead with this. Um, and so he started kind of stealing time away from himself to kind of start working on products. And so he started with um, the visualized value. I think the Daily Digest or the Daily Manifest was the first product that he came out with. It was really this um, kind of set of questions and um, resources for you to kind of go over your goals and work work through this little worksheet every morning to kind of keep you focused and keep you focused on the high leverage things and did well with that and kind of layered that up into selling a bit more um, of a community kind of product to get people together. And that now I think his kind of flagship piece is um, build twice, build once, sell twice, um, which is this like productization playbook. And so he sold uh, courses on how to visualize your ideas and courses on how to productize yourself, basically. Um, and it, the business is going gangbusters, you know, follow him on Twitter and he's, he's very open about his numbers. Um, it's really been an incredible thing to watch just in the time of, you know, the last two years while I was writing this book, he was busy applying the lessons from it. And he, he made a better use of the last two years than I did <laughs> uh, <laughs> from a financial perspective. But, um, yeah, yeah. Just, uh, give him a follow check it out he's a great guy so that that little story there hopefully really drills home the point that we're talking about here that you have even someone who's highly talented and highly remunerated already working within a business but there's a, a glass ceiling on firstly how much you can earn plus the freedom that you have etc etc um and that is because, as you said, that scraping off the top that happens, you get billed out at five grand for a day, but your bosses take 50% of that, and then there's that, and the da 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 and then you walk away with a grand and a half, which is still a lot, but is nowhere near as much as you could have got. Plus, you're still constrained by working for someone and not being able to take time off whenever you want. And then there's a kind of a diagonal upward and sideways move, which is to owning your own company. Then you could start to leverage a little bit with regards to the labor. You could get you could perhaps be the face of it. You could be the ambassador, the one who has the gravitas and is well known and then put designers in underneath you. So you don't necessarily have to do as much grunt work, but even that you can only onboard as many clients as you have time to fly, to meet them, to the fortune 500, the Tesla company, whatever it might be. Here's what we're going to do for your design right now. I pass it back down, endless meetings back and forth, as opposed to saying, right, okay, I can, conceptualize and wrap up into a course all of the stuff that I know on how to be the person who can do all of the things that are up to this point and even this point I will teach you how to make a course that's exactly like this course using whatever specific knowledge you have 
and that will continue to sell. And once you've written that, that is exactly his build once, sell twice, or build once, sell fucking 200,000 times or whatever is going on at the moment. If I could buy stocks in Jack Butcher, I would do it. Um, so that's, I think, a really, really interesting insight into wealth. And there'll be a lot of people who hopefully will go and read the book and it'll make a little bit more sense. But that's such a huge red pill to swallow, like to actually be able to understand exactly how you um, start to move away from just time for money at that one for one and then start yeah. to really, really leverage. It's a really big a uh, really big sort of orthogonal shift for a lot of people. It is. And it's very, um, it's very counterintuitive. It's very like difficult for humans to kind of get in their head in the same way that it's difficult for us to intuitively do the math on compounding and understand like how things compound and how the oh, exponential dude, returns work. As, like, uh, let me put, let me jump in there and I'll let you continue. Um, 95% of Warren Buffett's wealth was created after his 65th birthday. Do you know that one? Yeah, it's incredible. And it, the there's fuck? not many people who do basically two full careers in their lifetime, right? Like that guy, um, it's it's wild. And it's, it's one of those things that doesn't sound right and it can't possibly be true. And you look at the graphs and it doesn't even make sense. Uh, but that's the power of compounding, right? And so that, that compounding kind of works in all of these areas. And I think leverage is another like – I'm not very like mathematically inclined, so I might need to like enlist some help from somebody to get this. But I'm there is probably in the same way that you can like look at a compounding chart and be like, that is fucking mind blowing. Like, there's no way that should work, but it's how it works when you just give it the time. I, I think there's something similar with leverage that is just so difficult to intuit that you have to kind of see it in action. And it, it, the same way, it takes time to to work and build, and these things build on each other. Um, it, it's a thing. It's probably the thing I'm most interested in digging into more after having finished this book. It's it's a thing that w once it got labeled as leverage, and of all categorized it into those kind of three broad classes of leverage, I started to think about it completely differently. And I think it's a huge, um, it's a hugely improved label on whatever. Like now that I know that there's a thing there, I want to go dig into it and I want to study it. And there's probably books and like courses and things to do like a leverage checklist on like, how are you being leveraged and how are you not? And where are you doing $5 an hour tasks where you should be outsourcing that and doing $10,000 an hour tasks? Um, I think there's a lot to explore there and I'm kind of excited to kind of go down that rabbit hole. I agree. And I think that having as many practical examples as we can, guys like Jack Butcher, I've taken inspiration from him myself and I've been quite transparent with the uh, reach and the plays of this show it's not often that you have an objective measure of anything, you know, like success or impact or happiness or, you know, money's like one of the few things and body weight, like that's it. Like money and money, you know how fat you are and how rich you are and that's it. But um, yeah, it, it's it's good to have that thinking. I was, I was just going to say that. I feel like your your former athlete responds to like, give me a scoreboard and I'm, I'm going to fucking win. Yes, like, yes. Show me how well, I mean, gamifying, gamifying stuff is such a hack as well. The mm -hmm. fact that we we struggle with these abstractions, we're not very good at tracking things. Not anyone that's tried to lose weight without using my fitness pal, like you know the you know the pain of like how many cows was that? Oh, it was probably this. And you get you gain. You're supposed to be on a hard cut. You feel like you've been on a hard cut and you've you've gained weight. You know what the what yeah. what happened? Like you need to track. You didn't measure absolutely yes. everything. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, how can we prioritize and focus? Mm, prioritize and focus is, is kind of the um, capstone on the building wealth section. And it really it, it does its best to kind of push aside all the things that are not specifically about building wealth. Um, and so one of the things he, he kind of 
looks at is that there's a lot of people who are out there trying to kind of build status. Um, and they are, they build status by attacking people playing wealth games. And there's like this social hierarchy game that we are all kind of playing in this, how we're perceived game that we're all kind of playing. Um, but that is not in, for most people, how wealth is created. You know, maybe if you're a media person or like an actor, there's an exception to that. But for the most part, like getting rid of all of the things that are distractions from that and understanding like where wealth truly comes from leverage accountability, specific knowledge, building or buying equity in a business and just letting that compound, you know, getting, getting the, you know, you're making sure that you are making incremental progress and making sure that it's being reinvested appropriately. And then just giving it time and patience to compound, like focusing on the right stuff. Um, you know, th there's, there's always a kind of debate about hard work and hard work is important, but the thing that comes before hard work is making sure you are prioritizing the high leverage work that's going to give you results over the long term and focusing on it. And if you're working hard on the wrong thing, you're not going to get anywhere. And so getting that, getting your priorities straight, which is really, you know, by the time you're 50 pages into the book, you should understand what your priorities are. You know, for you today, maybe it's recording this podcast. Maybe it's, you know, publishing something that you did a week ago. There's probably, if you write your whole to-do list, there's probably two things that are the most critical. You know, you're either building leverage or pushing it out and, and kind of pulling money in so that you can reinvest that. Um, and everything else is kind of like either a low value task or if it got pushed to tomorrow, it was fine or somebody else can pick it up for you. You know, one of the things that um, Naval uses as a test for this is putting a really, really high hourly value on your time. So I think he, he said today on Twitter that somebody asked him like, so how do you value your time? He said hundred dollars a minute, six grand an hour. If I can outsource it, or not do it and it costs me less than a hundred dollars a minute, I don't do it. And they, the pushback for that is people are like, yeah, sure. But like, you're already rich. And he's like, no, no, no. I started that well before I started that when people would say I should have taken a $20 an hour job or something. Right. Um, but having that mindset that like your time is really valuable and you have to invest it in those high leverage tasks, those, those key priorities, and you've got to focus on those. That's, um, kind of a mental tool that you can use to keep focused on that and be sure you're working on the right stuff. That's going to, going to keep that compounding engine going. That's another thing as well. People, especially if you're working class, working class background like myself, you know, mum and dad always cleaning the house consistently or, or uh, washing the cars, mowing the, the grass outside, all that sort of stuff. It took um, my first ever boss, actually the first ever franchise that I got for nightlife um, was <laughs> the guy who owned Carnage and he was a megalomaniac but had some really great insights and one of them was precisely this that if you can outsource something for less than you charge your time out it wasn't quite as insightful as naval's setting yourself this very very high um price but if you can at the very least pay someone to do a thing for less than you charge your time out for what are you doing like just go go to work like, unless you particularly have a, one of these guys who absolutely adores washing the car which i am i don't get I just, for some people, maybe, but not for me, not for me. And we, like cutting the grass is the same thing. What are the other stumbling blocks that you think people fall over on the way to this um, end goal of, of achieving wealth? So we've talked about the fact that people get kind of tied up doing low value tasks. They trip over that. And if you do sufficient low value tasks, today is a, to, I, I've just been absolutely submerged in low value tasks today, but I haven't made the pivot to get a VA or a PA. So uh, it was either like 
don't do them or that everything comes crumbling down because it's little bits, admin tasks that are necessary but could be done by someone else. What are some of the other places that people stumble over? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that like death by a thousand cuts of like you feel like it's one decision at a time of like, I'll just do this. It'll be easier to just do this than get somebody else to do it because it is an intimidating thing to go hire somebody, even like, you know, a VA or PA for relatively low amount of money. Um, it's still like a big gnarly task when like a clear, simple task is in front of you. You can just do it and be done. Um, I, I think um, I think people underestimate maybe how valuable their specific knowledge is or how unique they are um that's something that is kind of we all have you know self-doubts and insecurities and we are like you know we're used to walking down the street and feeling not too dissimilar from ten thousand other people that we study these success stories and it feels so maybe far away and like those people were so different than us um but it's not like I, I think everyone has something really valuable to bring and can productize themselves in an interesting way. And everyone's story can be valuable to someone. Um, and, Imposter and syndrome really, is a hell of a drug. Though. Yeah, it's a hell of a drug. And I would say like no matter how small you start, like Jack, Jack again has a, an amazing cure for this. His goal is just like make one dollar on the Internet. Just go sell one thing to one person for one dollar and you will feel different it will start that snowball and you kind of slowly build up the confidence you know you got to start at the tutorial level maybe um but you're going to keep building that confidence and you're going to slowly kind of grow your way into finding your audience and find your way through that maze uh, and just taking that first step will give you the confidence to take the second to take the third um but but you you know whoever is listening to this like you are more unique and valuable than you think you are and everyone is kind of an incredible combination of their genetics and their experience and their perspectives and their beliefs. And everyone is unique and everyone has some sort of skill or insight that they can bring to other people. If you can learn it and package it the right way and just see what people respond to that, that you want to bring to them. Um, so that's, you know, that's probably even before the kind of logistical stumbling blocks is just the belief that there's something there for you to do and for you to add value. We're all an expert in something, man. Like, absolutely. Let's say that you're a mother of, uh, you've been a full time mother since you were 23, and you've had, you've got this huge family. Maybe you've even adopted a couple of children as well. And you've got now taken eight infants, either your genetics or someone else's, and got them to adulthood without anything catastrophic happening. You are an absolute expert in rearing children this is how you can manage getting them ready for school this is how you can manage doing food prep on a morning like i know that these especially the unsexy things like the domestic side the um relationship side of stuff that's more to do with um not just finding a new partner but actually further entrenching and um improving your existing relationship then that's not that sexy you know, no one, no one thinks that I'm going to get rich on dealing with the practicalities of having a big family and making a, a SaaS course about it. But there is a huge, huge, huge market for it. And what you're seeing now, here's something that I'm, I've got a little bit of a fear about, which is that the disparity in work required to produce an online course versus to produce a book and the remuneration that you get from producing an online course versus producing a book, and now bifurcating so aggressively that we are going to be swimming in courses. 
the fact that James Clear didn't just do Atomic Habits on Teachable is, you know, beyond me. But he decided, oh, let's use this archaic, old, like, stupid form of communicating something and print it on paper and maybe you can get it on Kindle. No, I'll speak it in a... But I, I'm, you know, I, I hope that something happens to at least even the balance out because I know for a fact that I have tons and tons of people that I've seen on the internet who couldn't write a book if their life depended on it, but are killing it in, in making online courses or you're teaching people to do stuff. And everyone knows the same with the Instagram influencer who managed to get clout online and is now monetizing mm-hmm. off the back of $1,000 a post per day. But if you ask them to sit down and try and string four words together, they wouldn't be able to do it. So I, I think that... Um, there is a little bit of a we're vacillating between different extremes at the moment um and perhaps we're seeing this counter to the sort of enlightenment period where you had people where um intellect and academics were very very tightly confined and now it's been completely emancipated and everyone can get access to it and uh, right okay now everyone that's that's like remotely clever can be super rich right okay now let's find somewhere that's that's a happy medium between the two yeah i wonder how much looking back this will look like a a gold rush um and i actually have the same so I, i have a huge admiration for online courses and i think um I have definitely spent some days thinking about exactly how you feel and how, what you just articulated. Uh, and I also think that it is at the same time, there is so much value in them and they can be so much more transformative for people because they kind of, they layer in accountability and social mechanisms and they add some kind of visual and audio learning that, you know, people who, um, don't get as much like out of a book might resonate with. And the time that it takes um, it actually like makes you more invested the money you invest makes you more invested. And so if you want to change who you are as a person, unless you really have the discipline to bring your full self to take a book and transform it into your reality, then I absolutely believe an online course can be incredibly value add and worth every penny that you're paying for it. I think um, that the, the there's key, definitely the key insight there is the fact that people are paying for the end result. They're mm-hmm. paying for the outcome that they get at the end. If, yep you would be to be able to say, right, you can buy James Clear's Atomic Habits for £10 or you can pay £1,000, but you'll implement 90% of the book. A lot of people would more than happen because they're paying for the end goal. And the, the more frictionless that you can make that and the higher completion, the higher success rate that you can make that as well, you're going to have yeah. justifiably more I revenue. Think we're, I think we're, we just maybe crested the hill of some innovation in those online courses that gets that actually makes it deliver the result to people. I think, um, you know, I went through this at reforge, um, which is like a, a Silicon Valley kind of growth consulting, um, or growth practicing sort of course. Um, it's an expensive course, but it is incredible. It's taught by some of the most brilliant kind of growth people in the Valley. Um, you see it with Tiago Forte and David Perel's courses. Like they are very focused on delivering the outcome with Jack butchers. Um, and, and that is, that is very different than like, you know, that, Hey, we recorded some college lectures and put them online sort of deal. And these, these like artisanal, like almost kind of innovators in, in courses are really doing some awesome stuff and transforming lives. But there's also a whole bunch of shysters out there to your point that are like, yeah, people pay $200 for anything. Like if I make some, you know, vast promises and then I can just blame them for not actually following through and make a ton of money on it. Everyone knows. So I had Mike Winnett on, have you seen the entrepreneur? on youtube no oh dude you will absolutely adore this so um 
most of the people that are listening will be familiar with him. British guy. He looked at the naughty psychological tricks that are being used by what he deems contrapreneurs online. Uh. So it's your Dan Peñas of this world. It's the um, Grant Cardone's. And it's um, high ticket value, heavily discounted down. It's the limited time, limited limited amount of offers. Like imagine saying that there is a limited number of an infinite product and genuinely considering yourself to be a a, a legitimate businessman. Like, fuck off. And the only people (laughs) that make money from those courses, the only people who he's ever found who've made money from Grant Cardone's courses are resellers. So the only people who make money from the course are people reselling the course, which is a fucking pyramid scheme. That is a pyramid scheme. I'm aware that it's not, it's managed to subvert the expectations of it being a pyramid scheme because it delivers something. But when that something is so shit that the only thing you can make money on is reselling more shit, like that, that is what it is. So yeah, I think, you know, to kind of bookend the, um, I have concerns over the online course world. Like, don't get me wrong. Um, the plan, my main plan to assist monetization for the podcast is to create a partner academy, which is, mm. Um, the guys from Podcast Notes doing summaries of every episode, a uh, community similar to Jack's where we can discuss about stuff. It's basically like a, a Patreon on steroids with yeah, cool. a ton of stuff that will really help people. But I'm like, right, what's the lowest entry ticket? Can I do it for £9 a month? Can I can I give all of this value for that much? And will it will it work? Right, okay, yeah, great. As opposed to it being something that costs that literally doesn't add any value and costs $10,000 or, you know, five nine nine seven or whatever it might be. So I think, yeah, yeah hopefully we will see the resurgence in um, or, uh, people becoming more savvy to the, the dick funnels approach, which is being used. <laughs> I don't know if you coined that, but I like it a lot. That's another, uh, that's another Mike Winnetism. Yeah, he, uh, okay. his, next, his next episode is on, who's uh, the guy behind ClickFunnels? Anyway, the guy that created ClickFunnels, there'll be people screaming down their, their AirPods to me at the moment. Um, <laughs> the guy that made Dick Funnels. Uh, uh, that's, that's actually, so this is, I really want to do, um, I, I've, it's only a toddler right now. It's like a baby, baby business. Um, but I, I want to get it going. And we're, I think um, there's so much to, I think there's a wave of courses coming. And especially as like actual real school is now pretty much online now that, that this like the meritocracy that we talked about is going to move into online courses. Um, and something that I'm getting going is basically wire cutter for online courses. Um, it's called What's course up? correctly. Oh, wire cutters, like this very high end, um, review site. It's for electronics. Mostly. Um, it got acquired by the New York times. I think so a like year or so. trust, trust pilot or trip advisor or whatever. Yeah. More, um, more like staff written, highly curated reviews. Okay. Um, okay. But, yeah. 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 I'm, I'm working out ways for people to basically like, get the course for free and then uh, write a very, very detailed review of like, did it change your life? What kind of people is it good for? What is it not? What does the course promise but not deliver on? Um, I've got a few reviews up on there already, but if anybody wants to like write a review of a course that they have been on, like I'm going to start hosting independent, unbiased, like verified reviews for online courses, because I think it's so hard to find anything written about things that is not pushed out by the course creator themselves. And so separating some of this stuff and being like, you know, can you imagine being a 24 year old kid and you're sitting there with your life savings about to buy like one course or the other? And you're like, 
I don't know, Grant Cardone. Not or like Grant Cardone. Other Here's my advice, 24-year-old. Do not <laughs> spend your money on Grant Cardone's course. Yeah, Eric, man, you need to... I'll link you in with Mike because what he's doing in this space specifically, he's doing it in a very British way, which is very kind of dour and, and quite satirical um, and, and, and sort of dulcet, but really vicious as well and, and incredibly effective. Um uh, yeah, I, I'll link you two guys in because you would you would absolutely cool. love him and uh, he's a great guy. How does Naval suggest that we get lucky? Mm. Naval categorizes four kinds of luck. Um, there's just blind luck where you just trip over it. There's hustle luck where you're having every coffee you can find. You know, th- this is uh, I think of like Gary V is hustle luck. Like oh, God, that, that guy, poor guy, man. Uh, but but it works, right? Like it, there, if you work hard enough, you will increase your surface area to luck and like you will kind of find some tailwinds. Um, the third is increasing your sensitivity. And so just like getting deep enough into things and looking for opportunities and believing that they're there um, is, is a huge piece of it. And the fourth, um, which uh, is beautiful and I love it, is basically become so unique that luck becomes your destiny. Like when you are the only person who can unlock a certain opportunity or you are so well known for a certain thing that people just come to you for it. Um, that is, that is when luck becomes your destiny. That's the, the fourth type of luck that is the, the most ideal, the most, um, sought after it takes the long, it takes a long time. It's the hardest to get, but understanding that it's there and it's at the end of that road, um, can really kind of draw you along and help you separate even as you're looking at other people, you know, what kind of luck did that person, get versus the other right what how does warren buffett get lucky versus how does mark cuban get lucky like who who just kind of sold at the top and who has the sort of reputation and um kind of uniqueness that there's just only one person to call and like it feels like luck when you get the call but it's also the end result of 50 years of hard work when it's consistently you that's getting the call as well that's Mm -hmm. when i've been trying to i've been playing around with this concept for a little while to do with there's a lot of people I know who are still very successful. James Smith is a good example, British guy. He's like the Gordon Ramsay of the PT world. So he calls out bullshit diets and um, ineffective training regimes, and he has a best-selling book, and he's just about to release another one. There'll almost certainly be a best-selling book, and he makes retarded money through uh, his his uh, online academy as well. And, um, yeah, he he has a very unique view because his ascendance into clout, like global clout has been so quick that he's still got Mm. a lot of latent imposter syndrome in him. He doesn't say it, but I know that it's, I know that it's there. Um, And he's got a a best selling book written by him, not ghostwritten, written by him on an industry that he worked in for 10 years. And he's still waking up every morning, waiting for people to rumble the fact that he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. And, (laughs) There has to be a point for all of us, and this is like a this is a siren song to the grafter who's talented but still doesn't believe in themselves, and maybe it's a, a word to me myself as well, that there's only so many times that your imposter syndrome can clash up against reality and your reality annihilates your imposter syndrome before continuing to have imposter syndrome is more an addiction than it is a survival mechanism. I think a, a healthy amount of imposter syndrome actually can come across as humbleness, which is really useful. Um, and yeah. it's, it helps to wrangle our ego and stop it from getting out of control. But there's an area where you like, 
Naval is humble because he chooses to be humble where he needs to be, as opposed to having this false sense of a lack of enoughness in particular areas. And that's a very big distinction between that. So yeah, if if you're doing stuff, try and look with as much rationality and logic as you can at the things that you've done and think like, look, am I am I continually beating the odds of what my own imposter syndrome expected me to do? And if that's the case, mm-hmm. then that the um what would you say like the the window of what imposter syndrome where it should be needs to shift to one way or another uh, and hopefully hopefully people will will see that and it's the same thing goes for the look if it's constantly you getting the call over and over and over and over again then fair play do you think it's something that's in my head do you think that the line from accountability which is skin in the game high visibility to this um one key one lock solution you are the person that can fix the the problem therefore you get luck on the route between those two things avoiding the status seeking avoiding the clout for clout's sake avoiding the hierarchy games like there's a lot of left and right turns between that do you think yeah i think so and i I think it's a very good line to draw between accountability and and that fourth type of luck that is the the uniqueness luck and the you know sort of reputational luck um i think you you get that by having you know, demonstrably good judgment and good outcomes over a very long period of time. It's you know, the that's compounding how, outcome yeah, of accountability. That's how, you know, you get people to want to work for you. That's how you pe- get people to want to invest in you. That's how um, you get people to want to, you know, use your products or, or listen to them or learn from them or, you know, buy the tools. You know, that's um, in a way that's Basecamp's marketing strategy, right? It's it's when you start to see accountability, um, as as like the very essence of brand building, you start to see how pervasive it is and how common it is, and how even you know the big companies that we trust the most, we trust them because we know the person behind them. You know, it's it's not just that it's Amazon. We know that that is Bezos. It's not just that it's Tesla. We know that it's Elon Musk. You know, um, it's not just Berkshire Hathaway. It's Buffett. Like we we are so much more adept at trusting people and holding people accountable than we are. You know just an entity, just a company that, that is a brand, but not a person. Um, and, and I'm sure that has like a deep kind of social roots like that, that is evolutionarily baked into us that we know how we can hold a person accountable as a community, but not how we can hold this, this kind of corporation accountable. That's what at its purest sense, influencer marketing was supposed to be right. Like the fact that Cristiano Ronaldo has 40 million followers, but Real Madrid only has 12 or that Elon Musk yeah. has like tens of millions of followers and SpaceX and Tesla got their Facebooks deleted or whatever it was that he decided to do to them the other year. So like, yeah, people follow people that don't follow things. Moving mm-hmm. on to happiness, second half of the book, Naval says that happiness is learned. Do you agree? Because most people would think that happiness is a state, not a skill. Yeah, I think that's a that's a misconception that leaves a lot of people unhappy. Um, and, and you you hear it in how people talk about happiness. You know, they say like, "Did that make you happy?" Or "I just want to make you happy." And like, make you happy when you look at those words and think about them is such a fucked up kind of concept. Um, and, and almost all conversational relations to happiness are about external circumstances. Like, are you happy you got this thing? Will you be happy if you get this thing? Like. Th- it's not looking at it as 
not not just a choice like a, a choice is is the beginning of it but a skill right you you have to choose to be happy not just once but you have to choose to learn the skills of happiness and over and over and over again to pound those skills into you just like you train like an athlete just like you build a business like you have to put reps into building these habits and these perspectives of happiness and almost making it a reflex to look at things positively to remember that happiness is internal you know is derived from appreciating what you have from not adding new desires from not postponing your happiness until some accomplishment or some you know new thing you get um it, it is giving yourself permission to be happy in this moment with what you have and doing it constantly and it's hard it's really hard um and so it is not just a choice in each moment but it is a skill to develop the ability to keep making that choice over and over again how can we cultivate our happiness then yeah there's there's a lot to um there's a lot of habits kind of listed out in the book that it, that is maybe the most tactical kind of level of it um and there's a there's a few um off the top of my head that like one that stuck with me is uh whenever you see the sun feel the sun on your skin like look up and smile right it's such a small tiny thing but like you will find a beautiful perfect moment if you just take a second to like feel how good the sun feels and look up at it and just like have this moment of connection with like our energy source um you know on a like more tech level like don't set an alarm clock, minimize your use of calendar. And those are things, those are ways that like, those are external controls of your time that pull you out of the present moment. You know, if your body needs to keep sleeping, if you don't want to get out of bed yet, like if you don't have an alarm clock pushing you out of bed, maybe you'll be a little happier in that moment. You'll appreciate like how the sheets feel. You'll appreciate the temperature of the room. You'll take a deep breath, like keeping your mind where you are. Is, is maybe and appreciating, you know, the smallest thing. Um, I, this wasn't, I think Naval retweeted this, but I don't know if it was an original Navalism, but like, I, I, I love it because it's got a perfect trigger with a thing that I look at every day. If you can't be happy with a cup of coffee, you won't be happy with a yacht. And so I have this, this thought every time I like pour a cup of coffee and hold this kind of warm thing and smell it. And I'm like, this is making me happy in this moment. And I know that if I can be happy with a cup of coffee, I can be happy with, with anything. That's awesome, man. Let's talk about desire. What's the key insight to do with desire to learn from Naval? Yeah, we'll, we'll start with like the most dense aphorism, which is six, desire is a contract you make to be unhappy until you get what you want, which is an easy thing to hear and be like, oh, okay. Um, and a very difficult thing to remember to apply to everything that you desire we, we so instinctively pick up new desires so quickly um it, it's just really easy to look around us and walk through a store and be like i want that i want that i want that you know to look at other people especially on social you know you scroll through your instagram and in 20 minutes i'm like shit i really want to be a genius stand-up comedian who looks like the rock and cooks like anthony bourdain and there's no reason that i shouldn't be able to have all three and i just decide to be unhappy until I've accomplished all of those goals that all those people spend their entire lives doing in completely different directions. Um, and, and it takes like going back to that idea that you don't want to make a contract with yourself to be unhappy until you get something, especially if it is a wildly fucking unrealistic thing to ever, <laughs> to ever get. Um, so knowing that, that you really should have a limited number of desires, like Naval says, just one at a time. You know, if you're going to if you're really focused on building your company, focus on building your company and, and like allow yourself that desire. 
but but be contented with everything else that you have and really work hard to accept every other circumstance and not pile on, you know, your, your incredible, you know, fitness goals or goals to travel and goals to like just take one desire at a time um, and work to minimize the rest. You know, it's, it's so much easier. It should be easier. It is definitely cheaper to eliminate a desire than it is to you know, overspend to go into debt to to try to like run in too many directions at once. And those other desires are likely to kind of cost you more of your, your energy, your mojo, your focus on that one thing that you actually most desire and prioritizing those is, is really hard. And, and I think, um, you know, the younger you are, the easier it is to take on more desires. You have more possibilities in front of you. You, you have a little less um, direction and track record of like what you know you want for sure. And so you're interested in all these different things and you pursue all these different things at once and you have this huge multitude of desires. And, and I think, um, one, one of my hypotheses for this interesting fact that like 70 year olds are usually the most happy cohort of people. And, and I wonder how much of that is like, they really have learned to appreciate what they have. They really feel comfortable with, with who they are and they don't have a ton of desires. You know, they, they, or have learned the skill of contentedness and appreciation for the, for the things that they have. And they're not constantly looking forward to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. They're just living in the moment and, and enjoying, you know, what, who they're with and what they're doing. The problem that we come up against here is what I brought up earlier on. It is easier to achieve your material desires than it is to renounce them. And I've been thinking about this for ages that the trajectory of your particular modus operandi within life has already been laid out by your elders. Look to your mm. granddad. Look to the things that your granddad enjoys doing. You know, a, a, a nice glass of wine while he watches the football on a Saturday afternoon and going to the pub with his friends and a walk with your grandma with the dog and stuff like that. The simple pleasures. And we, we I think, can over-romanticize that, but it is impossible to pass those away from is that only able to be achieved when you've already gone and done the things? It's significantly easier for your next car to be something that some banged up family mobile after five Ferraris because you're like, do you know what it is? I've already done the Ferrari thing. That doesn't really matter. And this also, unfortunately, ties into one of the reasons that I think Naval's so seductive to a lot of us that his real world success is something that we all want to try and emulate and achieve. And the problem with that is that a unsuccessful version of Naval, who would be able to use the desire contract aphorism more accurately because we couldn't call him out for only saying that's easy because you've achieved all the things you want to achieve materially, we wouldn't respect because he hadn't actually managed to make stuff manifest in the real world. Does that make sense? It does. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested. I want to push back on it a little bit because I think I think the like it's easier to achieve your material successes than to eliminate them is, is maybe it's probably true for some things, but it also kind of, it doesn't take into account the trap of the like hedonic treadmill. And so, you know, it maybe it's easier to achieve, you know, getting a really nice, getting a BMW. But then if I have a BMW, I'm going to want a Ferrari. And if I have a Ferrari, I'm going to want a private jet. And if I have a private jet, I want a sports team. If I have a sports team, I want a fucking country. Like, there's no reason for that to stop. And if you just let it keep snowballing, like at some point it is easier to learn how to, especially if you realize that the path that you are on and that you are happy with is not going to lead to enormous, incredible wealth. Like for plenty of people, I'm sure, you know, 
I'm a teacher. I love being a teacher. I'm going to make maybe at best a couple hundred, or, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year. Like even if I start a business on the side, I'm just never going to buy a sports team and that's perfectly okay. And so now I have to learn to control my desires. And, and I think that's, what's so important about this book is that it has the two halves of happiness are, are how much you have and how much you want. And combining those, I think like uh, Morgan Housel on your podcast actually did an incredible job with this. He's like, it's not about how much you make. It's not about how much you want. It's about the relationship between the two and understanding that those levers are connected. I don't care what your means are as you're living below them. Like you're, you're going to be happy as long as your desires are in line with, with your lifestyle. And so controlling those two things and, and kind of moving them around so that you can find yourself in a state of happiness. Again, like if you're not happy with a cup of coffee, you're not going to be happy with a yacht. If you're not happy in a Toyota, you won't be happy in a Ferrari. You're just going to want to add the Lambo. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you. And so like, if you don't see that, if you don't see that desire as the source of an unhappiness, um, it's, it's going to be tough to kind of get over that hump, uh, whether you get what you want or not, because you'll just leap to the next desire. They say that true hell is when the person that you are meets the person that you could have been. But it seems like in this situation, it's more like true hell is when the person who you are imagines all of the stuff that the person who you could have been could have had. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, that's a good maybe motivational quote for you to, you know, be all you can be. Um, but it also is the sort of mental trap that can leave you like deeply unhappy if you imagine, you know, what would have gone, how your life would have been if everything would have worked out perfectly and you had gotten lucky at every turn and worked your face off at every single thing. Like that, that's a recipe for misery. I agree. Um, but is that not just due to most people having a misaligned idea of what their full potential could be? If you were to fully imbibe the Naval philosophy, then your full potential would be someone who is as actualized and present and happy with as little as possible. So convert uh, in a bizarre way, you would almost be upset at your own level of materialism. So the materialism itself would be the thing that you say, my potential is to have less materialism than this, not more stuff. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, separating materialism from your accomplishments and your, your contentedness, you, you know, your inner state from your outer state. Um, cause it's, it's difficult to s imagine a maximized version of both of those kind of as, as coexisting, I think. Um, N Naval's like nuance here, which I think is interesting is like, he, he doesn't want to be the most successful version of himself. He wants to be the one that is statistically likely to become the most successful. And so it, it's a little like if What's there's, you know, it, if there's a thousand Naval's in a thousand different universes, he wants to live his life and, and build his businesses in such a way that 999 of those thousand eventually become successful. You know, if you, if you go to the casino and put it all on double zero over and over and over and over again, and 10 million people are able to do it. One of those guys is going to get incredibly successful, you know, just to use a very simplified metaphor. Um, but most of those people and those people on average are going to get decimated and be unhappy. And so his kind of, um, MO around how he makes his decisions and how he kind of architects his life. It's like, I don't want to work as hard as possible. I don't want to be as successful, the most successful version of myself. I want to do the things that allow me to get kind of the most successful with the least risk, the least variance and the least, um, actually the least input. Like I, I want the highest ratio of, of input to output that I can get. I don't want to spend my life working is what he would say. Like 
he loves what he does now. He loves starting businesses and investing and does it, continues to do it as an art form. So I, I don't want to, you know, spend 20 hours a day working, doing things that I don't necessarily want to do in order to achieve some outcome. Um, but finding a thing that he loves to do and doing it in a way that statistically across a wide set of his lives, if you were to play them out you know, on a Monte Carlo simulation, would very often or most often lead to some level, some outlier level of success, but not an extreme outlier. He's not willing to take huge, huge downside risk in order to get that extreme, extreme outside. I think that's a lovely antithesis to the hustle and grind mentality that I think a lot of people can fall down the trap of. And we all do as well. It's sad and unfortunate that the thing which often sets us apart in our 20s and 30s is the thing that we need to try and cast away and lose as an attachment in our 40s and 50s. Like you, there's, there's a period where you've got to get your nose and stick it on the grindstone for a long time. You need to grind away on your craft, whether that be learning the skills that you can leverage later in life, building up the authenticity and the amount of clout and notoriety that you have within an industry, even if that's as fully and beautifully aligned and actualized as we've been talking about here with all of the requisite um, amounts of presentness, you can't get around the fact that it's a function of intensity times time, the Cal Newport work done uh, equation. If you do more work, if you outwork everyone at a higher intensity, then you piss all over them. And that's the way that's the way that it works. Um, but yeah, I, I really do think that that antithesis to the hustle and grind mentality is super important. I think it's really, really nice for people to to understand. And as well, this is coming from someone that we both believe is incredibly wise, that he enjoys, as does Buffett, as does Munger, a life that is driven by ridiculous amounts of freedom and the only reason that they look like they're working all the time is that that's what they choose to do mm -hmm. morgan housel's definition of what wealth gets you is wealth allows you to do what you want when you want with who you want for as long as you want and no one gets to tell you otherwise that is what wealth allows you to do and that level of freedom is something that i think maximally we can all aspire to and you can get there in multiple different ways you can get there by reducing down the material desire because if you reduce down the threshold at which materially you will be happy then you can afford to work less to get there which means that you have more time to spend on stuff not just stuff that you have to do but stuff that you get to do and then if you can use the leverage and all of the other uh, tools to free yourself liberate yourself from sort of the typical rat race then you also get to be able to do what you want to do all the time because work is the thing that you get to choose because you've defined it yourself. Yeah, and I think this is um, sort of a, a kind of to take the side road here. I don't know if you have studied the kind of financial independent early retirement movement at all. No, um, no, I've seen it. I've seen it online. It's a, it's a really interesting, um, you know, if, if people are asking the question now of kind of like, okay, how do you work on that skill of living below your means and understanding like getting a big gap between what you're earning and what you're spending and finding fulfillment and things that don't that aren't hugely costly um reducing your material desires Th that is kind of a i don't know there's there's uh, reddits on it there are the book that's kind of the forefather of this is early retirement extreme by jacob fisker it's a it's a nutcase book um but it is like so extreme that when you dial that back to like a normal person you still end up way way ahead of most people um, the blog that kind of pulled me down this is, um, Mr. Money Mustache. It's a great blog. He's a hilarious guy and he was a software engineer for like 10 years. Got his personal savings rate, I think to like 
60 or 70 percent. And it's this idea that like you're living on, you know, if you're making $80,000 a year, you're living on $30,000 a year. So have a family. So, you know, taking walks, you just either only have one car and barely use it. You mostly ride bikes. You know, you play board games, brew your own beer if you want to have picnics instead of going out to hundred dollar dinners, you know, like there are ways to live a very happy and fulfilling life on not that much money that is not correlated at all with increased material possessions. And he worked for 10 years as a software engineer and built up enough net worth through his savings and his investments that he retired. So he retired at 30 or 31 and he's like, I can live for the rest of my life very happily on what I have saved up. And he continues to work. He continues to kind of do things that he wants to do, but it is that perfect freedom. There's a lot of paths to that freedom is kind of like the point of bringing up this other movement. Uh, you can try to work really hard and earn a ton of money so that like, you, no matter what your desires are, you could never outspend them. You can go, you know, be a monk or, and, and that kind of like, you know, middle ground for middle class with normal jobs is, is really well explored, I think, in this kind of financial independence, early retirement um, movement. So I, I encourage people to go like check that out and go down that rabbit hole if that's something that they're interested in. That's really cool. I've heard of him before, but I've never read never read any of his stuff. Just the name. I want to, I want to see the man, the man, oh, money man mustache. That's what I want to see. Yeah, he, he has great fun with it. He's just ruthlessly mocking people with expensive cars and, you know, unnecessary possessions and things that people think are going to lead to happiness, but aren't. Um, and he made a hilarious character out of it. And of course, because he was, you know, using his specific knowledge and accountability and leverage, he built this incredible blog that makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And so he could have retired on that. And, and <laughs> far richer than he ever wanted to be desperately trying yeah. to give his money away. Yeah, because he was doing something that was fun to him and totally authentic, and he did it with a lot of energy, and a lot of people kind of uh, got excited about it and, and fell in with him. Um, I think it's another incredible example of, of productizing yourself, and he did that accidentally, you know, with with no intention really whatsoever. What are three insights or quotes from Naval which have had the biggest impact on how you operate in the world? If you were to do a top of the pops rundown mm. of the, the the three most insightful quotes, are the ones that have had the biggest impact on you? Yeah, I, I can't promise I'll do these word for word, but I'll try. Um, I, I think the one that's been sitting on top of my head the most is is just this idea that we are here for such a short amount of time in the grand scheme of the universe, and we are entirely in control of our perception of the things that are happening to us. And, and here's the, the key piece, is that any moment that you are not happy, that you're not choosing to interpret what's happening to you positively – you're not doing anyone any favors. You are not better off for being unhappy. The people around you aren't better off for you being unhappy. Um, I, I think I, I don't exactly know where it comes from, but we certainly have this um, this thing built into us that we feel like we are not supposed to feel happy. We're not supposed to allow ourselves to feel happiness until we've accomplished something, until we've delivered some result, whether it's for ourselves or for someone else, for our employer, for our partner, for our family. Um, and that it is possible to kind of allow yourself happiness and to make progress at the same time. Like, I don't know if, if other, that is as hard for other people as it is for me. Um, and maybe that's like the athlete in me that came from, you know, like you just got to like put your eyebrows down and, and put your back into it. And like strength comes from that. And like that will push you harder. Um, and artists may be better at kind of, 
feeling flow and creativity in the moment and uh, feeling like they have to be happy in order to work instead of being unhappy in order to prevail. Um, but I think that's a, that's a really interesting idea. Um, on the wealth side, just the fact that you have to build or buy equity in a business, um, that really, I, r- I realize when you put that at the forefront, um, there's a lot of ways to do it, right? You know, I was kind of raised with the like, work hard, get a good job, put it all in a retirement account, a 401k, index it, you know, the, the Jack Bogle playbook. And that is a way to build equity in a business. Like when you buy into the stock market, you're, you, that is a, you know, you're buying equity in a ton of different businesses and allowing that to compound and pay dividends for you. Um, there is also the small business world where we are all basically a small business of one. We own a hundred percent of the shares and whether or not you're going to go do something with that to make that more valuable. Um, in the Silicon Valley world, you've got, you know, take a job with stock options and you try to kind of work your way into companies that are going to be valuable and positions that are higher up. So you get more stock options. And that is a way to build or buy equity in a company. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways to accomplish that when you see that as the goal. Um, but, but understanding that that is a goal, not necessarily just a higher hourly income or something like that. Um, those are kind of, you know, maybe one from each world that are, that are sitting with me right now. Have you got a third one? Have you got anything else that you've come across from him recently that you think is, uh, is maybe a little bit different. This one um, isn't talked about very much. I, I don't think um, I don't think Naval is necessarily thought of as as, as like funny and charismatic as as I think he is. Um, you know, he's introverted. He doesn't do a ton of talks or anything like that. But there is one um, that uh, charisma is the ability to be both positive and uh, or to project love and positivity kind of at the same time or honesty, sorry, the charisma is the ability to project honesty and positivity at the same time. And that is almost always possible, right? So you don't have to tell someone harsh truths about themselves. You don't have to present the truth in a negative, contradictory, harsh fashion. And I think that is somewhat in vogue, right? There's always the character who's like delivering harsh truths, um, you know, and like thought of as smart and competent because they're able to like pop people's bubble. And that just, People don't like that. Um, you know, it, it plays well on TV and it's it's maybe like funny to watch. But if you take that character, take that as your character into real life, like it's going to be really hard to build positive relationships and to um, kind of work smoothly with other people. So um, projecting honesty and positivity at the same time is something that um, certainly I'm working on and is certainly tied with the like, there's no reason not to be happy with each individual moment. You're not doing anyone any favors by being negative. Um, and you can be positive and honest at the same time. I think this is one of the problems I have with the, uh, like meninism, men's rights, red pill movement overall, that the vast, vast, vast majority of the guys that fly that flag super hard just sound like bitter old men. I'm like, bro, like I don't want to be you. I don't want to be you. There's a part of every guy that, even if it would do your head in, wants to know what it would be like to be Dan Bilzerian for a day. But like Dan is, I think, probably fairly, not in his business dealings, actually, because he's about to go bust, but um, at least with the way that he puts himself across, he's fairly honest and he's positive, you know? Like it's got to be positive to scam people out of $20 million for a, a CBD company or whatever it is that he's been doing. Uh, I am not a like. I'm gonna have to get some lawyers or something to protect me. So if you can, <laughs> if you have, if you can help me at the end of this podcast, that would be wonderful. Um, I've been thinking about 
was something that you just brought up there, which is that Naval doesn't do a ton of talks. I've had his brother Kamal on. Um, I've tweeted him in, incessantly. That's a lie. I've tweeted him a couple of times about it. Um, but I know that he's basically on, apart from his own stuff, he's basically on a sabbatical um, from doing sort of press ever since the Rogan episode. And I wonder whether he realizes how smart of a tactic that is to reduce the supply of Naval so that the demand continues to skyrocket and that the amount of the, the value per minute of the stuff that he does choose to put out continues to go up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know how deliberate it is. Um, but I mean, you can see in, in everything that he does it is a very high quality bar and, and as you know, he's not building a media company. He's doing this for us. I think, you know, more, more than himself, all, all he's doing really here is kind of like learning in public and giving back a little bit. And, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, we're, we're lucky he does as much as he does. I think, um, there's, there's, I think plenty of people who are equally or more successful that don't do nearly as much kind of teaching and giving and sharing of their perspectives as he does. Um, and as you know, I've benefited a lot from, from what he shared and uh, I wish more people would kind of take the time to do it. Um, Ray Dalio, you know, I know there's, there's a chapter of careers where people kind of turn to that, that piece. Um, but it's hard work, you know, it's, it's a lot of effort to distill what you've done. And, you know, I know Ray Dalio, but many, many hours of effort into, into principles, both for his business and, and for the book. Um, you know, I know Naval certainly put work into the podcast and the tweet storm and, and things like that. Um, but, and that's what was kind of fulfilling about this project is that I got to manifest a, a thing that I wanted. Like I wanted Naval to write a book, um, and just realizing that all of the raw material was out there and that I could do the work for him. Um, it, knowing that I didn't think he, he probably ever would and that he was fine with it. Um, so this is this is fulfilling to kind of see this come to life. I really wanted a, the principles of Naval, and and this is kind of what it turned into. I bet it was, man. Like, create the podcast that you wanted to listen to, write the book that you wanted to read, build the product that you would have bought. It's such an easy way to ensure that you continue to build things that are aligned with your interests and the other people. Like, if you think that it's a good idea, other people probably think it's a good idea you've got you know two arms and two legs and a brain and a set of eyes and stuff you know you are you are a, a common denominator for the rest of us so before we finish up man final question what do you disagree most with Navalon? Hmm. yeah that's a good question um i don't i don't know that um we talked about this a, a little bit i think um earlier on, I don't know how compatible the kind of like iron prescription stoic philosophy is with, with super close kind of intimate, like family relationships. Um, and, and there's a little bit of kind of breadcrumbs around that, but he never really speaks directly to like how, um, how he practices these principles kind of with his wife or with, um, you know, children or anything like that. And I'm really, um, that is that is one of the like toughest tests I think of a philosophy is is when the relationships matter most these people close to you who you know their emotions matter to you and their their pain hurts you and their happiness you know affects your happiness like how do you how strict of a prescription is the stoicism in in those sorts of things um, is something that I'm really 
I don't know if I disagree with it because I, I don't know what he thinks about it, but I'm, I'm interested in the practicalities of, of that piece for sure. There's all different areas. We said right at the very beginning that one of the reasons both of us are drawn to Naval is that he's not armchair philosophizing about this stuff. It's even beyond philosophy designed for practicality, it's philosophy forged in reality. And I think the fact that we have that is something that's so great, but there are a few very hot forges that challenge people in ways beyond the normal comfort zone. You know, like when you talk about deeply embedded self-beliefs from when you were a child, the source code of like who you think you are, that's one of them. You know, your your family relationships, how are you and your significant other and any children that you may have, how are you managing four hours of sleep a night with a, ba- a newborn baby for for six months, you know, in a relationship where blah, 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 like add on a bunch more stress. Like that's that's real for, because we can sit here and talk about the business does this thing and blah, blah, but you don't go home to the business. You know, the business, yeah. the business yep. isn't lying in bed scowling at you at night. It might not, it might feel like that from the way that your inner monologue talks to you, but there's always a particular level of detachment. And I think the way that the narrative always is, and also the way that we feel it should be, is that there is a particular safety around certain things in life. There's a, a, a home base that is insulated from the chaos of the outside world, family being one of them, and even further internally than that, the inner monologue and the way that you see yourself. Um, so yeah, I think hopefully after his little sabbatical, Naval will come out of his hiding hole and decide that he's going to unleash a whole more stuff on us. Because I mean... God, that that Joe Rogan podcast, if you want the best overview I think that you can get before you decide to read the Navalmanac, um, I think go and listen to Naval on Joe Rogan. It'll be linked in the show notes below, uh, as will the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Where should people go? They want to check it out and read all the extra materials and, and get the full Eric Jorgensen experience. Where do they go? Yeah, n- uh, Navalmanac.com. Um, is the the site of for the book? So we've got A C K, right? Yeah, yeah. N A V A L. I can't spell it. Yeah, you'll figure it out. Yeah, um, it's linked below. It's linked, just press the link. Press the link. <laughs> it's linked from my Twitter, which is at Eric Jorgensen. Um, I do a little bit of writing on eJorgensen.com, um, but I've got open DMs and emails. I'm easy to find. I'm definitely going to keep updating things on the email list for the book website. So we'll, we'll keep having kind of new material, new explorations. I'll update things as, as Noel comes out with more stuff. Um, I'm really interested to kind of dive deeper into exploring leverage and uh, seeing kind of more of those applications. And I'm thinking about doing some like case studies of, of applying the principles from the book into how different people have built their businesses. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, the book is out, but we are still like, there's a lot more to explore and a lot of interesting stuff to do like around the book and, and like with the community. Um, there's a, there's a chapter of the book. That's the whole, um, section of Naval's recommended reading. And I thought it'd be super interesting to do like a, like a reading group around it, like a study group for some of those materials, um, for people who want to kind of get into the, the influences and the sources. Um, yeah, I, I think it'll be really fun. There's a lot of there's a lot of good ideas floating around. Um, if you got ideas, like I said, DM me, email me. I'm, I'm open. I'd love to hear them. 
I love it, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Everything that we've spoken about, including the Almanac of Naval Ravikant, Eric's Twitter, his website, everything will be linked in the show notes below. Um, I hope that uh, Naval's ears haven't melted his AirPods as we've said his name about 45,000 times. Or if you want to party and you're in lockdown, listen to this podcast again and take a shot every time that we say the word Naval. Um, <laughs> because that would be... We're, we are not liable for your definitely going to die. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Eric, man, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, super fun. Thanks, Chris.